Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. This idea of separateness, of the human as separate, has allowed us to come to this situation, which now seems apocalyptic. Some scientists believe the whole universe is conscious, like a giant human brain making sense of everything it sees. Perhaps... We are the manifestation of its consciousness. Or maybe the universe exists independently from us. Not everyone is in agreement, of course. But is it so hard to imagine, is it too difficult to believe, that we're not separate from everything else, but rather a part of it? As humans, we often feel like we are the centre of the universe. And as we live increasingly disconnected lives, as we continue to exploit our planet and shut ourselves off from nature... This grows increasingly evident. Our delusions of grandeur likely stem from our seemingly unparalleled mastery of consciousness. Yet consciousness is a concept we barely understand. Are animals conscious? Are insects conscious? Are trees conscious? How I became a tree is the enchanting story of what it means to be human in a natural world. Lovingly written by Indian author Sumana Roy, the book was originally published in India in 2017 and, as of yesterday, is being shared with the rest of the world. Hailed as a love song to plants and trees, it examines life from a unique and compelling perspective. Speaking to me from the foothills of the eastern Himalayas, Sumana is my guest today. Chapter 1 if I could live. If you could live your life as something else, what would it be? For many of us, living outside the bounds of a man-made reality, even just for a day, sounds like bliss. Simplicity is escapism. But actually picturing exactly what that would be like is difficult. We struggle to empathise with anything non-human. We can do it for some animals to varying extents, but we feel too removed from everything else to imagine what life would be like as, say, a tree. The language we use to describe non-human things, the cultural depictions and lessons we learn as children, all guide this. We've ostracised ourselves, and we're worse off because of it. Sumana wants us to reflect on and remember our place in the world, just as she herself has done. Quite a few have uh, people have asked me this question. How long have you been working on this book? And inevitably, the answer I have uh, been forced to give or compelled to give has been a half-truth or a half-lie because I myself am not aware how long I have been working on this book. As you so rightly guessed, this is something... It's not like writing a book about, say, a favorite writer or, you know, a favorite person a city. It's something that's been with me for so long that I wasn't even aware of this idea. I'll share with you, Mark, what uh, this space that it came from. And obviously, this is something that I could only see retrospectively. It began from this very long commute that I had to work uh, from home to this another small town called Jalpaiguri in North Bengal in India. And I would be aware that it was in my car or on public transport. I would uh, make notes on my phone 
This was about 10 or 12 years ago. And I would also carry a notebook with me. Sometimes I would get up in the middle of the night and my husband who slept early, I did not want to disturb him. So I would go and sit on the pot and make notes. That was also a time I was going through a lot of emotional confusion. I'm slightly hesitant to use the word difficulty, but also um, not. I wasn't keeping in great physical health either. There were times that I would be all alone at home. And sometimes uh, I would wonder that I, you know, I did not have, for want of a better word, the courage to consider death as an option. I wanted to live, but I did not want to live like this life that I had at that point of time. And I began asking myself, what could I live as or live like? So obviously, as you would have guessed by now, it was completely on the level of metaphor. So it was summer in India, and you know what summers in India can be like. Um, the ceiling fan uh, was uh, running above my head like it is at this moment, and I hope it doesn't spoil the sound. And I thought to myself, maybe I want to live like the ceiling fan. And um, I realized that no, what had pushed me to this moment in my life where I wanted to live not as a social human, but as something else or someone else came from a space of wanting to live outside the emotion economy that defines the human social or relationships. I wanted to move out of reciprocity that defines human relationships. So I thought it wasn't an option to be a ceiling fan. I would be dependent on someone to switch it on or turn it off. Then I thought, maybe I could live like a dog. And again, anyone who's lived with a dog knows that it continues to fall within the same emotion economy. A few days or months passed, I can't exactly remember. All I remember is that I was very unwell again. I was lying on the bed and again it was summer. And there was a papaya plant right outside my bedroom window. And because I was lying down, I was looking at the ceiling. And in this late afternoon light, I remember the shadows of these beautiful papaya leaves, which you know resembles or at least in my imagination, resembles a human palm. They were dancing. And immediately there was something in me that moved or shifted. I began to feel better. And I thought, the papaya plant has given me something without asking for anything in return, in that sense. I realize now that it was a very silly and limited idea, a limited understanding of the idea of reciprocal relationships. But I was willing to take or grasp onto anything that would come to me at that point of time. And then I decided I wanted to live like a tree. I began to make notes about these thoughts. Three or four years passed and I thought to myself, is it that I am the only abnormal person who has wanted to live like a tree? Or have there been others as well? And then I began looking for people such as myself, writers, scientists, philosophers, spiritual thinkers, and unremarkable people such as myself who had wanted to live like a tree. So it became something like a quest and three or four years passed. And suddenly one day I began to see that my notes 
in the notebook and on my phone had also accumulated into something. I began noting them down on my computer. And that is how the genesis of what would become how I became a tree. Uh, I, I think of that moment. So it's been a long answer. Uh, so I don't know whether that answers your question satisfactorily. It, it does. It's a long, it's a beautiful answer, Sumana. And it made me think about my own relationship, not just with trees, but with nature. And I, I wanted to share some of those observations. Now, if you, you know, you talked about reciprocity and this, this relationship that we have with nature, we are essentially guests in a natural habitat. It's not ours. We don't own it. It was there long before we were. But if I think about what trees can do for humanity, they help us if we allow them to regulate the planet. They can feed us, they can protect us, and they can shelter us as well. And, and in return, we have a tendency to, to chop them down, to burn them, to turn them into products, which is fine as long as we can sustain that level of development. But it's a very unbalanced relationship, isn't it? I, I often, you talk in the book about, you know, if there was such a thing as a natural eye for an eye, what would trees or plants or nature do in return? And I wonder whether we're seeing that now from a climate change perspective that is starting to bite back. But it's not a it's not a fair or equitable relationship that we have with things like trees, is it? This idea of the separateness of nature and nature always within quotes from the human I think is at the heart, if it can be called the heart, if this kind of instrumentality can be called the heart, is at the heart of what we are calling climate change or the crisis that we are going through. I think a few things come to me from my uh, being a resident from a slightly different culture, from, uh, you know, I wouldn't say from yours, but from the kind of thinking and thought systems that kind of has led me to think or reconsider this idea of how the West, for want again, for want of a better term, uh, has looked at nature. As you know, the scientist Jagadish Chandra Bose, who kind of about 100 years ago told us that plants were living beings and so on. And if you compare that, who was he proving it to? Basically to the Western world. Uh, to a quote-unquote scientific understanding of this phenomenon. So what he was trying to show to Western science and Western scientists was this, that living things grow, living things respond. All his experiments were directed towards that direction. I think that many of us in the kind of uh, culture that we grew up in were not used to thinking of ourselves as separate from nature. I don't want to claim like say, um, Kathy does in Wuthering Heights, I am Heathcliff, but uh, yes, I am nature too, just as this plant behind me is nature. This idea of separateness has allowed us, and by us, I don't mean the West alone, because all of us have been complicit in this, but this idea of separateness of the human as separate from the quote-unquote the non-human has allowed us to come to this situation which now seems apocalyptic 
if it was possible and i don't want to kind of labor on the point that oh yes we get it from the upanishads one of our first um, sanskrit texts that the idea of being is not limited to what you know the west has so long thought of as non living even the whole category think of the categories human and non human this rather silly binary where of course after the renaissance where the human you know is kind of put into the center and everything seems to exist to serve the human but if we are able to think just as many of our intellectual ancestors had that no we are not separate from nature uh, that i am as much nature as a dog or a plant or moss or grass or a banyan tree is i think just as we don't we don't kill our pets for lunch for our meals this word cannibal it has come to exist because we don't eat our own kind we don't kill our relatives for lunch similarly if we were if i was able to think of a dog and the plant and everything else as being relatives as being part of a family i think we would be able to see the world differently and behave differently the other thing i think uh, that your question points towards is the need for the change in the vocabulary in which we need to talk about plant and animal life and other forms of life and the living you know to say to have this very kind of extreme bureaucratic language we need to save trees no one has saved a tree because we've seen you know this kind of banner go up somewhere on world environment day save trees if we are able to reestablish vocabulary of intimacy that links you and me and plant life and animal life and the elements i think we will be able to create a world where this danger that you are talking about might be pushed away in some form or the other chapter 2 a world outside of time what does time mean to a tree our human construct of time places far reaching limitations on us that we rarely stop to consider there is the biological aspect of time that tells our bodies when to eat and when to sleep but then there's the ticking of the clock the inescapable tick tick tock time marches on and sometimes it feels hard to keep up but this perception of time doesn't apply to the natural world there's an understanding of time passing but there's no specific record of it to be a tree is to live in a world outside of time it's a concept that samana touches on in the book as we're rushed and hurried as we're driven by deadlines and held hostage by curfews time for us can begin to feel like a prison particularly as an indian woman this question and this idea of curfew this has been part of every indian woman's growing up i think if you ask many of us to mark a particular moment when we you know when we transition from girlhood to womanhood it would be this not us getting our period but being groped by a man somewhere in the market in the street on a train and so on i have a brother who's younger and even though he was younger he could come home at 8:00 o'clock 9:00 o'clock 10:00 o'clock i had to get back home by 6:00 o'clock 
six o'clock because the sun sets. The idea that the day would be slightly safer for me, but you know, sundown brought with it its own set of difficulties and problems for an Indian woman was kind of coded into the idea of being an adult in India, a woman in India. And that was one of the, so you mentioned the underwear, the bra, but that too, and that is why I could transition in the bookmark from this to the idea of time. Because all of this, when I was writing about the underwear, I was also thinking about its relationship with time. When do we wear the underwear? There's all these constructs that are forced on us, the concept of the inside and the outside, and how none of this really affects plant life. I'll just give you an example. I have difficulty sleeping. I have to take melatonin from time to time. And yet I have to survive. I've managed to survive for so long. And I have to get up early in the morning to teach a morning class. I teach uh, at a liberal arts college. But no plant that I know of would be able to do this for years on end. They cannot afford to be insomniacs. This idea of the weekend that has come to us, the idea of pension, of mortgage, of taking holidays, all these artificial constructs of time have been imposed on us because of a certain kind of industrialization and capitalism. But none of this would apply, not just to plants, but those who live very close to plant life. Any, a farmer who works in the fields cannot take a Sunday off because he needs to water his agricultural fields, uh, field or you know, his crops on a Sunday. So I was thinking that while we've given in to, it's very easy to call this the lure of capitalism and the lure of consumerism, but what it has damaged is not just our bodies, but the way we experience the world. I think our relationships, for instance, we talk about mental health a lot. All of this might be different if we were able to live to what I have called a tree time in the book. There is a sense, a very real sense in the book of, you talk about our relationship with the countryside or, or with um, nature. And I wanted to touch on it because you've, you've mentioned the relationship that the West has with things like trees. There is a sense of colony and colonialism that pervades the book, which is really interesting. And it's this, this notion of privilege, and that doesn't necessarily need to be Western privilege, but this notion of city versus country and the transition of, we'll use the male form because I think it's, it's easier to land the point. Um, the city male traveling to be his country self carries with him a sense of privilege that almost entitles him to behave in a particular way in the country. I got the sense that we have a view of the countryside as city dwellers that we then impose on the countryside when we get there. And the imposition of that view or what that view is may be completely different to the reality of country living or of jungle dwelling as, as you as you refer to it in the in the book that was fascinating your, your book made me think of of Shakespeare in the sense that the notion of the forest or the jungle or the wood or the copse or I don't know when a cop a tree becomes a copse becomes a you know a forest becomes a jungle but Shakespeare uses as do other writers 
the the forest as both a magical place, an enchanted place, a dangerous place, uh, um, a destructive place. It's all of those things. Is that us imposing our view of what we think this reality is like? And if so, is the reality actually very different? This idea of nature as something to be experienced on a weekend, during a holiday, as something that is not continuous with ourselves, this idea of going to nature as if it were similar to going for a movie is something I disagree with. Again, because also because I don't understand nature. Nature is, a, you know, this one plant behind me as I speak to you, as it is the acres of forests 15 kilometers from where I am. So to think of it, you use the word colony, and I completely agree with you. This idea of nature seen in terms of its size as something to be experienced, this idea of wilderness, you know, when as even though we know at this moment that every form of wilderness that exists in the world today is actually some version of the garden, because there is no place on earth which has not been touched by the human anymore. What that does on, I, I live in a place that is a small town. This used to be different before the Indian economy opened up and before globalization kind of took over the world like it has now. My grandparents grew, you know, lived in a village and I would visit them often. My father was rural development officer in a bank when I was growing up and I would visit the villages that he worked in. But again, through all of this, Mark, I, I didn't grow up with a sense of the separateness of nature and myself. For instance, when I, I'll give you an example to answer your question, and I think it's a very um, moving question that what does it do to regions where people go to experience nature, for instance? I lived and taught in a college in Darjeeling for about four years, and I could see that though tourism was important to Darjeeling, not tea alone, but uh, even tourism and timber to run the local economy, yet there was a kind of anger, and I would say a history of anger that people from the region felt against tourists. Obviously, some of this has to do with the reckless use of plastic and taking everything for granted, leaving their footprint in a way that locals uh, or residents uh, would never like, none of us do. But it also had to do with a kind of experiencing nature, experiencing Darjeeling, experiencing mountain life, always in quotes. You know, the kind of exoticization that attends any experience that comes to you whether in, you know, in quotation marks, for instance, uh, that is troubling. And I don't want to get into uh, the politics of that because that is evident to everyone who you just need to Google and find out what has happened to Mount Everest because of the countless expeditions that even COVID-19 could not stop. You know, what the sense of adventure, you know, adventure sports, what does that has done to ocean life? So this idea of nature that is a weekend activity let's go for a trek let's go for a hike while well, all of that is understandable given our human curiosity for a variety of experience 
I'm not even talking about this in a moralizing manner because I, I don't like the idea or the narrative of being moralizing while speaking about nature. I'm speaking about this in a slightly philosophical and spiritual manner. Would we cause this kind of damage to our own homes? If we are able to think of the Eastern Himalayas where I am, I'm at the foothills, as something that belongs to me also, in spite of the fact that you might be in London or in Calcutta or in New York, if this is your house, you will not be able to spoil it. You will not be able to cause damage to it. You know, this sounds very, very Hallmark card-like. And I'm sorry uh, for kind of sounding like that. But I think if we are able to come out of, of, of the constrictions of territoriality that marks our lives. In Indians, for instance, we'll always spit on the road, on the street, on someone's buildings, but we don't do that at home. So the abuse, if we are able to think outside ourselves, we've developed a vocabulary of other and so on and so forth without actually importing it in our experience and attention to the world. You mentioned attention right at the beginning. And I think attention is affection. If we are able to see that I have left a footprint here, unlike for instance, what Robinson Crusoe couldn't, the idea of experiencing adventure like Robinson Crusoe did, I think that has to stop. And you know, the idea of the world being a Friday to serve you nature being a Friday to serve your sense of adventure. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three. And now we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and then send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on the writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter 3, Mother Nature. Despite the amazing good it has done, this era of science and facts has sidelined the notion of spirituality, as if it's no longer compatible with our understanding of the world. But perhaps that's because we misunderstand what it is to be spiritual. It's not magic or mysticism to believe that we're connected to nature, that there's a hidden world we do not yet fully understand. The biologist Susan Simard coined the term the wood wide web to describe the social lives of trees. She discovered that trees interact and communicate by sending electrical signals to each other through fungal networks. More like us than we'd ever give them credit for, trees can even count, learn and remember. Feeling kinship to a tree is no longer a spiritual fantasy. It's scientific. This notion of spirituality, to me, is the essence of Sumana's book. How I Became a Tree is not a finger-pointing exercise aimed at blaming humanity, but rather a lesson in hope. 
I'm grateful that the word spiritual resonated with you because we live in a strange time where um, people are scared or hesitant to use the word because uh, of identity politics, of it being ascribed to a certain kind of political thought. And I think it is time we free ourselves from this, you know, this accusatory mode, this fault-finding method that has come to define so much of our lives. I think this, what you pointed out, Mark, it is a characteristic of our sociological lives. When we go to plant life or even to animal life, to the elements, this discourse collapses. You know, this kind of fault-finding, accusing something, accusing someone. But because of our lack or because of our conditioning, only in this vocabulary, what it has done is it has left us incapacitated to talk about the other possibilities in which we could speak about plant or animal life or the life of the elements. Sociological discourse will only, of course, sociological discourse, and I'm not arguing against it, it has its importance, particularly in our world today, for you know reasons to do with redressal of different kinds that are necessary. But to live only in the sociological, at the expense of this binary that has been constructed, of the spiritual, of the philosophical, of the almost the birth of philosophy in our times, where people don't seem to think about why certain people are speaking about this. And uh, you know, this entire tradition that is becoming lost, I think we need to go back to it but need to go back to it not in the way I might be reading literature in Urdu or Sanskrit or the other languages as, you know, an experience in antiquity. We need to see the trajectory that has been created, that this is where we were, this is where we've gotten to. For instance, uh, I have been, over the summer, I have been reading Kalidas, a Sanskrit poet said to have lived in the fourth and fifth century. In one of his poems, for instance, one of my favorites called Meidutam, which, uh, which translates into the cloud messenger, which is basically about a cloud being asked to carry a message from one lover to the other because, you know, they are separated due to a curse and, you know, one of those things that used to happen in ancient literature a lot. But what is fascinating is Kalidas dismisses the love story or the romantic uh, interest at the very beginning, as if that was not central to his interest at all. What we are given is actually a journey of the cloud. So remember, this is the fourth or fifth century before drone technology, before the whole idea of points of view and so on. So as I read through this literature, I become aware of ancestors who did not consider the cloud as separate to their own consciousness, that it was very easy for them to think, like to tell a pigeon to carry a note, to ask the cloud to carry, you know, their words of affection to someone who's many miles away, many mountains away and so on. That idea changed in the last 500 years or so. When we think of colonialism, we usually think of European colonialism in this way. But there are other forms of colonialism too. This colonialism that does not allow us to think 
of other residents of, of this planet in the way that we think about humans is the kind of colonialism that needs to go. You mentioned gardening. It is not only for instrumental reasons. I think I am most alive when I'm mixing soil with my hands. In that, I might feel, if earthworms can feel, uh, very close to an earthworm. You know, this life of the sensory, of the elements, I feel scared for my nephew and niece whom I think of potatoes, you know, only in terms of French fries. They, will not, they have not seen how my grandfather, for instance, with whom I used to dig for potatoes. So it's not a moral lesson. All of this, the materiality that surrounds us, the senses that are necessary to our existence. So they know what a potato looks like only from a video game, not from, you know, having touched it. They're scared of insects. All of this, this narrative needs to change, I think. Fascinating. And it, and it and it starts at such an early age. It's a couple of things yes. that, that what you were saying made me think of is in my country, when you go to school, we, we teach children how to read, how to write, how to do mathematics and how to swim. But we don't teach them how to cook for themselves. We don't teach them about gardening or about nature. One of the first stories we teach children in this country, depending on their religion, is Genesis. It's the Garden of Eden is Adam and Eve, and that very first act of humanity is a transgression in the Garden of Eden, which sets all of this thing up. Now, we now live in a world in which we are introducing the concept of pronouns to describe ourselves. We are almost depersonalizing ourselves and becoming more attuned with nature in the way that we describe ourselves. And yet at the same time, there is another disconnect why do humans alone have portraits? Why is everything else landscape? Even our smartphones, you know, there is the everyday things like taking selfies or printing. We talk about portrait versus landscape. Is there a portrait of a tree of nature or is it, a, you know, it's not a level playing field. But, but I wanted to, to end on, on one thing, if I may. This is a essentially a nonfiction book. It's part memoir, part essay, part exploration of, 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 of yourself, but it's also incredibly literary. There are quotes throughout it. You, you reference Shakespeare, you reference Pablo Neruda. There is, a, there is a Frida Kahlo quote, which is, I paint flowers so they will not die. And, and that's a chapter heading. And that is absolutely stunning, which is why I think there is such hope and uplifting joy in this. This book came out in India in 2017, I think I'm right. By the time that this airs, it will have been out into the world for a, a, a few hours, if you like. How exciting is this to bring this book of yours to a, to a completely brand new audience? I feel grateful uh, that in this world where there is so much to read and particularly in a culture where so much is available to read for free because of the internet, I grew up in a small town which did not have a bookstore or even a public library. So I was always deprived and starved of reading material. So the opposite of that is what we uh, is the world that we live in today. And for people to choose to kind of give me their time and attention by reading what I've written, that means that means so much to me. Even you know if there was a word um, 
that could express more than gratitude, it would be that. How do I feel about this book traveling to a different culture? Uh, this is something that I began to think of when it first got translated into French and then into German. And um, one of the French reviewers, uh, I can't read French at all, but you know, my agent kind of translated that for me saying that they did not feel alienated and that was apparently the word by any of the references made to non-European uh, sources at all. So when he told me about this, this is what actually stayed with me, Mark, that I don't think a person in any culture would be alienated by any kind of plant life they encounter. Even when we go to the desert and we meet a cactus, we are not alienated. We know that it, it has a right to exist there. So I hope, this is all I can hope for, of course, that readers who might not be familiar with many of the references and writers that they might not have read before, this might be my way of kind of directing them to these writers that I am fond of. But basically to know that in spite of our many differences, when we look at plant life and the environs in which they have survived, there is something that links us all in spite of identity politics and everything that is happening in the world today. From a very personal perspective, I think it is the references that will live with me. They make the book what it is. And this is a, this is a journey, right? Your education never stops. And I have read things in yes. your book that I would never have ordinarily read. So I would like to thank you for that. Um, I also think there's a beautiful reciprocity between you calling the book, How I Became a Tree, it becoming a physical product on paper. There is perhaps no greater gift to the, the, the thing that created this in the first place and that, that relationship between human being and tree that have now come together. I literally hold you as a tree in, in my hands. Um, if you're listening to this, on Wednesday, the 13th of October, the book, How I Became a Tree by Samana Roy was released yesterday. Please go out, please buy. It's an absolute triumph. Samana, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to all of you who are listening to us, really. Conclusion, a massive thanks then to Samana Roy for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? The way we talk about nature pushes us further away from it. Our words have the power to alienate and ostracize, but they also have the power to connect. Can you come up with a new vocabulary for the natural world that fosters this sense of connection instead of separation? The whole world isn't disconnected from nature. Some cultures understand its role far better than others. But we can so easily become wrapped up in the definitions and perspectives that pervade our own culture that we forget the viewpoint of the rest of the world. Always remember in your writing that a person's truth is heavily influenced by their surroundings and a full story can only be told when you include a diversity of opinion. Try writing from the perspective of another object. It could be a tree, it could be a ceiling fan or a chair, anything. Go back to your school days and think about a day in the life of a dollar bill or a pound coin. Through personification of even the most mundane things, you can begin to appreciate the role everything plays in life. Remember what Tristram Hunt, the director of the V&A, said when he talked about the lives of objects. 
And finally, Sumana was able to find modern relevance and common ground in the thoughts and feelings of writers throughout history. Consider how writers of the past can guide the stories you wish to tell in the present. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. In the meantime, give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.